Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our text today is going to be verses 1 through 5. In a sense, this is a continuation of the last message in 2 Timothy because there's no chapter or verse break between 3 and 4. Uh, that was added later, so the discussion is continuing here in terms of the importance of the Word of God and how Scripture interacts with our lives. We really can't overstate the importance of the Word. The Word is God's revelation of Himself to us so that we can know Him. It's life-giving so that we can live for Him. The Scripture is described as being living and active. It's powerful, it's enduring, it's eternal. It endures forever because it is God's word to us that he wants us to understand so that we can know him and live for him. I really like what Howard Hendricks said. He said, the Bible teacher and professor Howard Hendricks said, God wants to communicate with you in the 21st century. He wrote his message in a book. He asked you to come and study that book for three compelling reasons. It's essential for growth. It's essential for maturity, and it's essential for equipping or training you so that you might be an available, clean, sharp instrument in God's hands. So the real question confronting all of us is how can we afford not to be in God's Word? That's the question that's posed by Howard Hendricks. Now the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God in verse 16 of chapter 3. In that sense, it's profitable for doctrine, that would be teaching, for rebuking and correcting, confronting and calling out sin, and training in righteousness. Training in righteousness means to be brought along in form or in practice. It's the idea of being developed or growing in righteousness and the truth that God has given to us. So God gives us these things so that we can grow to be more like Jesus and we can live out whatever his purpose is for our lives. So I want to look at several characteristics here in chapter 4 in these first five verses of why the Word of God is important and specifically why preaching the Word of God is important. And the first is this, preaching the Word is important because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. I want to pick up reading in chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Paul issues a charge here to Timothy. I solemnly charge you. Charge is a word that is translated also as testify, or I solemnly charge you to testify. And Paul is giving a solemn testimony to Timothy that he was to follow. And it has some legal nuance to it because it's similar to taking an oath in a court of law. And Paul is communicating to Timothy the significance of what is being taught, 
the urgency of teaching it, and then what we might hope the outcome would be as people hear it and apply it to their lives. So you can envision Paul, in a sense, in his writing, calling Timothy in front of God's judicial bench and charging him under oath with a very serious task. Now, he's charged with this responsibility before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, is what it says, who will judge the living and the dead. The context of it is connected with three facts. The reality of the judgment of Christ, the certainty of his return, and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, what we know foundationally is that God is a God of justice. Psalm 45 and verse 6 says, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So our God is holy. He's just. He applies that justice in judgment. Unless that judgment has been laid on Christ on our behalf, and we've responded in faith, and we've received grace and mercy. While God is a God of justice, Jesus has been entrusted as the judge of all the earth. John 5 and verse 22 and 23 says, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is the active agent of judgment. The Holy Spirit has the role of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, there are a number of judgments in the past that are mentioned in the Word of God. We don't have time to cover all of them, but I do want to reference a few of them. Uh, to give us an understanding of how God's judgment and his justice has been applied in the past. We find that there was judgment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they were banished from the Garden. There was judgment in the worldwide flood because of pervasive sin in the world in the days of Noah. God's directive to Noah was to proclaim the truth to the people, sound the warning, but also to build the boat. And when he built the boat, that was because judgment was coming in the form of a worldwide flood. There was judgment at the Tower of Babel. You remember they all were speaking the same language and they thought they could do anything and they're building this tower up into the heavens and God confounded their language and he dispersed people over all of the earth at the time. And that was a, a form of judgment from the Lord because of the pride and the disobedience of the people. There was judgment in Egypt when the false gods were judged and the exodus and the 10 plagues came and ultimately God's people got released. That exodus narrative became a very important story in the history of God's people leading all the way up to Jesus as the Passover lamb. And then the ultimate judgment was at the cross. When Jesus endured the wrath of God and took the judgment that we deserved for our sins, he bore the penalty that we should have been judged for. And by faith, we accept what his finished work is 
so that our sins are covered by his precious blood. But there are not only judgments from the past, there are judgments coming in the future according to the word of God. We find the judgment certainly of the tribulation period that is pictured in the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. There's the judgment seat of Christ, which is where the resurrected believers will be judged for their works in terms of eternal rewards, not in terms of judgment for our sins. We'll not be judged for our sins. Otherwise, that would be saying that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not sufficient. We'll be judged in terms of the responsibility that we're given in eternity to rule and reign with Christ and even beginning in the millennial kingdom. Uh, and the judgment seat of Christ is where, we're, where we will receive uh, those responsibilities and those rewards. The judgment of nations will come when the Lord will uh, sit in judgment over the Gentile nations. The sheep and the goats will be separated. And then ultimately there's the great white throne judgment which is the final judgment of unbelievers for their sins, which will take place at the end of the millennium. You can read about that in Revelation 20. So I say all that to say this. Jesus is the perfect judge. He's not like human judges or human rulers because everyone is influenced by their backgrounds, their perspectives, the situation at the moment. Uh, we only have uh, limited information, and Jesus has all the information. And he always judges according to truth and righteousness and holiness, not by some sense of a human opinion of what he thinks is right or wrong. He does so according to the eternal character of God. John 9 and verse 39 says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Now there's a reference here to his appearing and to his kingdom. Jesus came the first time as a suffering Savior to redeem us from our sins. He'll return as the sovereign king to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will appear and he will set up his kingdom. And the word appear was used to describe a king's visit to a province or to a town. The king would be going for a purpose, either to make himself known to the people or to uh, represent some decree being issued or something else that was important in his rule and his reign. That king would have a herald who would go before him, and the herald would go into that place where the king was going and he would deliver the message that the king was coming. Maybe there's some type of directive or some type of message he was delivering on behalf of the king. And then the king would make his appearance. So we're given this instruction here to preach the word. An idea that Paul has repeatedly emphasized. He said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Hold fast to the pattern of sound words. The things you have heard commit these to faithful men rightly divide the word of truth a servant must be able to teach so over and again he's returning to this idea of preaching the word not being ashamed of the truth proclaiming the message the idea of preaching is the idea of heralding 
a herald would often travel into even enemy territory ahead of an advancing army to warn the enemy of certain destruction unless they accepted the terms of peace. A herald would go into a city, as I said, before the king would arrive and he would be there with a message. And the point is, the herald didn't make his own stuff up. Like, he, he didn't have his own material. He's not going thinking, you know, I'll just be improv with this and I'll just make it up as I go along. He would have been killed for that. There would have been no margin for error on that. Likewise, as we teach the truth in the church, it's not supposed to be about us. It's not our opinions. It's not our message. It's God's word that we are preaching, that we're proclaiming to the people. And we're to preach the whole counsel of God. This is everything that's contained in the Bible. Biblical preaching should be exercised in humble boldness with the focus primarily on God and his glory rather than on the preacher. I love what Wayne McDill said. He said, we seek to understand what the text is saying. Then we translate that information into the intended theological message. Finally, we explain that message to the congregation. That's the process. And he says that we need to be ready in season and out of season. There's got to be an urgency to this. Why? Because lost people are perishing. That's why there's an urgency to it. If, in fact, the mission of God is our most important assignment, and it is because it's making the glory of God known, it's making the good news of Jesus Christ known to people that have not trusted in him by faith, there ought to be some sense of urgency to it. There's no time for spiritual laziness. There's no time for consumer Christianity. There's no time for complacency. There has to be an urgency about it in season and out of season while we await the return of Jesus. And we're told to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with teaching. To correct is to reprove, meaning to present your case in a way as to convince someone of something. Rebuke is an appeal to conscience about what is right and calling people to repent. Encourage with great patience and teaching is to exhort with the patience that the Lord has given us so that we might encourage people to do what is right and apply the word of God to their lives. So you can think about it this way. If you're preaching the word or you have the responsibility over a Bible fellowship group or you're teaching some other area of students or, or children or whatever, and you're communicating the truth of the word of God to the people that you're communicating it to, then in part you're appealing to reason because God made us reasonable creatures that we're able to, to think with our minds and be corrected when we're wrong. We're appealing to the conscience because we're rebuking for what we know to be right and wrong. And let me just tell you, here's a very dangerous spot to be in. If you're one of those people that says, oh, yes, I believe the word from the beginning to the end. Yes, I am a Christian. I believe it's important. I believe it ought to be followed and so on. And then your life is incongruent with that. Isn't that a concern for you spiritually? Like, don't be deceived to the point that you can somehow think that you can say with your mouth, oh, yes, I agree with it. I support it. I stand on it. 
but then I can just go and do whatever the whatever I want to do. That's inconsistent. So maybe God is going to correct you or rebuke you even through this message today or encourage you through great patience and teaching. And then if we apply this to the will and to the emotions, that's the exhortation part. So it's the reason, the conscience, and the will are the emotions. So you can think about it, you can get convicted about it in your heart, in your life, and then you can either do it or not through an act of your will. Preaching is important because judgment is coming. And then listening to the word is important to guard against error. I want to pick back up reading now in verse 3. We'll read verse 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Well, we've arrived. I think it was much earlier than now, but we certainly are in the middle of it. But according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Paul's commanded Timothy to preach the word in all situations. And I think Paul understood this. The pressure for a preacher in any culture is to give in to weakness, fear, fear of man, fear of the response, whatever. And preach something that's just a little bit more palatable to the people. It's a temptation for every preacher in every culture in every age. But yet we're focused here again on sound doctrine, which is a continued theme in the pastoral epistles. Paul makes reference to truth multiple times in each of the pastoral epistles. Sound means healthy. It's actually similar to the word where we get our word hygienic from. So sound doctrine results in healthy Christian living. And it's not always pleasant because the word confronts our selfishness. It confronts our sinfulness. And it shapes us and directs us to be more like Jesus. And we have a tendency to turn away from the truth and to embrace what fits our lifestyle or what feels good at the moment. That's the easy way, at least for a season. But God's calling us to the truth. So here's what people do. They multiply teachers for themselves because they have itching ears. And itching ears are characterized by an endless curiosity, an insatiable desire of variety, a desire to get our ears tickled rather than to hear what we need to hear. And those who fall away will specifically avoid the truth. Some will turn away from the truth altogether. They will not listen to it or follow it. And let me tell you, when people leave the word, they will embrace anything and they will turn aside to myths. Oh, it's a short step. I mean, if you can convince yourself that the Bible says something different to fit your lifestyle, it's on then. Because nothing's out of bounds at that point. You can just make it say what you want it to say. And Peter made it clear that he and the apostles did not follow cleverly devised myths, but they were eyewitnesses, John did the same. And I do want to say a, a word of warning here that we should not assume that a teacher is scratching, itching ears because they're popular. We shouldn't make that assumption because God can determine what 
breadth that he wants to give to a ministry, and he often does. That's up to him. That's not up to us. Nor can we assume that a teacher is faithful to God's word because they are popular. So it goes both ways. You say, well, they're popular. Well, certainly they must be teaching something that's not true. That may or may not be a right statement. You have to evaluate it for what it is. But then you can't assume, well, certainly all these people are following that. Certainly it must be right. Well, no, a lot of people follow a lot of things. And they end up in places that they don't want to be or don't need to be in. I like what uh, John Sartell said in his piece, Easy Preaching for Itching Ears. He said, the minister who changes the message from God to fit the desires of the world around him aids in the destruction of lives, families, and civilizations. That's a heavy statement, but I think it's valid because sometimes people are seduced into preaching messages that are popular with the people who are listening, but in fact, they wouldn't be popular with God. And there are two options that you can take when you approach the word. You can submit to the word and you can rely on the grace of God through it. You'll never be sorry that you did. I say this often, but I promise you, you will never be sorry if you submit yourself to the Bible and you do what is right. You follow Jesus Christ with your life. You will never regret it. You will have a lot of other great regrets in your life if you take a different path. But if you follow Jesus, you'll never regret it. Submit to the authority of the word. Or you can just change the message to fit your lifestyle. In fact, if you choose the latter, you can find a church that will or already has adjusted the message to fit the culture. And churches who change the message from God to fit the desires of the world aid in the destruction of lives, families, and the culture. And it's important for us to understand that when we listen to the word, we can guard against error. And that's why it's of such great importance to the life of the church. Now, I think there are probably about uh, three different kinds of congregations when it comes to reception of, of the word. I think there are congregations that tolerate it and will listen and don't have a lot of pushback or anything, but they're not really joyfully receiving the word. I think there's a lot of churches like that. Then there are some churches that joyfully receive the word even if it's painful or it causes course correction or draws us to repentance or some other difficult truth that God is confronting us with but we still joyfully receive the word and then there's churches that they're like yeah that's not what God meant yeah we'll just edit that part we'll just make it what we want it to be let's just let's just highlight that and change it to something else and mark it down as some type of cultural influence and just go on with it. Listen to me. There are a lot of churches like that. A lot of denominations like that. There's a lot of Christians like that. What should we be? We should be the church that joyfully receives the word. And I am thankful to tell you that I believe that is the spirit of this church and has been for a long time. And it's so important because if we get off focus from the main thing and from the truth of the word we're in trouble. We need to listen so that we can guard against error. So I want to commend you in that, that I know because sometimes I'm, I'm delivering the message myself and I'm thinking, Lord, that is painful. Okay, Lord, what do you want to teach me before I can actually say something about this? And I can tell you that's one of the ongoing just 
spiritual development things that the Lord does for those who preach and teach, whether you're in a Bible fellowship class or you have a preaching role like this on a Sunday morning, is God will wrestle with you through that word and get it through you before you get it to other people. And that's one of the blessings of teaching. In fact, that could be the case as well. You could be teaching a kindergarten class and that be the case. Because you're looking at it, you're thinking, okay, Lord, what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? And now how can I communicate in a way that will be helpful to somebody else? And that's what teaching and discipleship really is, is all about. And then persevering in the word is important because hardship is certain. Let's pick back up now in verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So the response of the people to the word is not the determiner of the preacher's perseverance in it. Now, it's helpful if people receive the word, and it's helpful if they're open and joyfully wanting to hear what God has to say through his word. But delivering truth is going against the flow because truth is that which corresponds to reality. So when people are not in reality and they've made up these other constructs in their lives that are totally contrary to the creation order, to the truth that God's word has given us, to how we're to be living life, when those things happen, it gets very confusing. And when we push back against it, as we've seen, especially as of late in the culture, then there's certainly hardship and conflict that comes as a result of that. He gives four positive commands. Exercise self-control in everything. That's to be sober, literally and spiritually. Calm, focused and controlled. And then to endure hardship. Endurance is a major theme. It's maintaining a biblical perspective during hard times. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Faithfully preach the gospel and reach lost people. So Timothy is being commanded to communicate the gospel as part of his ministry as a leader in the church. If we are not concerned about lost people, we have lost our way in terms of what the ministry and the mission of God is for his church. If we don't understand the significance, the importance of the centrality of the gospel and why we are here and doing what we're doing, we are here because we get to be a part of the redemptive mission of God. We get to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. And God has called us into his family to be a part of that. And we're privileged to do that. But if we truly love Jesus as our first love, and we've not left our first love, we've not departed from it, then we should want other people to know about Jesus. If if we can be forgiven and loved, and saved and given the gift of a home in heaven with God. And shouldn't we want other people to know that? And it seems like that gets pushed further and further sometimes with the background in churches because we're maybe concerned about what somebody else is going to think about us or we're, we don't, we're afraid we don't have the right words to say or whatever. Just tell people how Jesus changed your life. Share your testimony, your experience, and connect it to the word And God will use that as you faithfully communicate him. And he says, fulfill your ministry. Now, he's specifically calling 
on Timothy to fulfill his ministry at Ephesus. But he's saying to us as well that we can fulfill our calling, we can carry out what we've been called to do, and we can be found faithful in it. This is something the Lord's really been impressing on me in in recent months is, is the significance of not compartmentalizing your faith from the rest of your life. So, so don't think about your faith as, as some type of consumer Christianity where you're doing the church thing on Sunday, so therefore that's the exercise of your faith. That's not the point. Your faith should be woven into every facet of your life. Your own personal walk with God, the devotion and commitment to your family spiritually for you to grow, your relationships in the church, the broader mission that we have together, your vocation, how God's gifted you, the opportunities he's put in front of you. Are you thinking about doing all of those things as unto the Lord? If you are, then you are rightly fulfilling your ministry in the world, your calling in this world, because you've only got one life to live. You've not been called to be anybody else. You'll not be held accountable for how anybody else has lived. You'll not be held accountable for anybody else's gifts. It'll just be what have you done to faithfully fulfill the ministry God's given you. And as you do it, you need to be realistic and understand what to expect. Philippians 1 and verse 29 says, For it's been given to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but suffer for his sake. I love this quote by the preacher Kevin Marithi. He said, Whenever he is burdened by ministry, his wife will remind him of a quotation that he says he treasures more and more each day. And here's the quotation. Don't let the imperfections and failures of men turn you away from the perfections and the triumphs of Christ, who will never, ever fail you. Don't let the hardships that you'll face in living for Jesus turn you back. Don't let the discouragements that you might encounter by other people who are not faithfully following. Don't worry about that. You just do what you're supposed to do. You keep your focus on Jesus, and he will help you. There's a story about Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was one of the infamous five English reformers of the 16th century. He was also one of the greatest preachers of his day, and he had on occasion opportunities to go before the king or other important people and to proclaim a message and he was invited to come bring a message before King Henry the eighth of England now if you know anything or remember anything about history I think he had six of his wives killed something like that you can go back and fact check that if you want to but this man this king was not a good man he, he, he was not at all so Latimer's thinking about the responsibility that he has to bring the message before the king. But he realized that the message that God laid on his heart was not the message that the king would want to hear. And as he began his sermon, he, he heard the words, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you were speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears. But he also heard the words, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. 
Now, Latimer believed that Jesus was with him because he promised he would be. And he also knew that King Henry VIII would not be his final judge. Jesus Christ would be. So he preached boldly and he delivered the message that he had to bring. And it was not pleasant to the king. He said, well, good for him. He was bold. He was courageous. He's a great story in Christian history. Well, he also got killed for it. Because later on, he was burned at the stake by Henry's daughter, Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. But here's something that stands out about Hugh Latimer. He feared God more than he feared men. And we are in a time when there will be many opportunities and many temptations to capitulate to the fear of man in the coming days. Not say what needs to be said because of concern for what other people are going to think about it or how it's going to be communicated. And God is calling us to persevere in the word. It's important. We, we should expect this. Hardship is certain. And the idea of hardship is nothing new. But we are to endure in it because Jesus is worthy. His word is true, and we want to make him known. So I say to you as I come toward a close of this message, the church is to preach the word, listen to the word, and persevere in the word. Somebody said preaching has always been the lifeblood of the church. And the point is to communicate the truth, and then the Holy Spirit anoints it and applies it to lives. So you can always be bold in your testimony Because when Jesus is glorified, he will bless you and be with you, even if it's not easy. You need to be bold in communicating the truth in love. Don't expect everybody's going to agree with it or think it's great. Be bold in it anyway. And you need to be consistent in applying it to your own life. And this is especially true for those of us that are teachers of the word, because the scripture is very clear that Teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. It is a significant responsibility to stand before others and communicate the word because you want to communicate it faithfully from the text. You want to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you want to have the faith that God is going to do something with it as a result as he applies it to lives. And we just need to keep on keeping on. There's some weeks that are more difficult than others to be faithful in our own personal devotions. That's true for all of us. There's some weeks that it's more difficult to go and fulfill the assignment that you were given among God's people to help the the work of the church move forward. But you do it anyway because you love the Lord. And it's not going to get any easier. I I could tell you it's going to get easier. And I I could tell you a bunch of things probably. It's not going to get easier. But you can be faithful. We can be faithful. God help us to be faithful. We have no other alternative. If we want to finish well, let's bow our heads together as we pray for a moment. Lord, your word has been given to us as a gift. You are the God who is a self-revealing God. You've made yourself known through creation, through the word, and preeminently through your son. Thank you for the opportunity we have to just have your word as a gift in our language. To be able to sit down and read it on our own and hear the message that you have for us.
Help us to not be the people who receive the word and merely tolerate it. Or the people who receive it and then want to change it. Help us to be the people who receive it joyfully. Who believe in faith that you've communicated it to us with accuracy. And Lord, may our lives reflect that we actually believe it. I pray for everybody who teaches in this church in whatever capacity they're in, whether it's in the smallest of children or all the way up to uh, our senior adults. God, would you give us a, a greater hunger for your word? Would you help us have wisdom and discernment from the Holy Spirit as we try to teach it? God, would you help us not be lazy as we apply our, our responsibilities, but actually put the time in it that that it's worth and Lord as a result of it that we would see people coming to faith in Jesus we'd see lives being changed families being healed and Lord may you be glorified through it all God I pray that you would protect this church that this church for decades and generations to come if Jesus tarries his coming would be a place where truth is consistent uh, that we are unashamed Lord, that we are faithful and bold in the gospel. And if we'll do that, Lord, you'll take care of the results. You'll, you'll grow us. You'll provide for us. You'll make us more like Jesus. So, Lord, shape us to that end. Help us and help us be faithful with our responsibilities in this generation. And I pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior.